Hello, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hello, Jess. Hello, everybody. I am Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, um, and I also make tabletop role-playing games and sometimes uh, build the whole world from scratch. But we're going to talk about that in a minute with our guest, Sarah. Hello, I'm... The DM Sarah, Sarah Bryfogel. I kind of was on Twitter and I design games and I run professional games for stream and for private clients. So I approach this from both the design and the game mastering perspective. Yeah, and we're we're actually we have a topic today that is very much a blend of game design and GMing because this is one of the most game designery things you do as a GM and one of the most GM-y things you do as a game designer, which is world building <laughs> uh great way to put it. <laughs> that's that's a great way to it put is, it is though like it's... it is it is so bold mm-hmm. yeah and i mean you could you could even world build without a game involved at all uh that's called writing a novel <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs> so what do we mean by world building um sarah and why did you choose this topic well i chose this topic because i'm kind of working on you know, every so often, eventually you end up building your own setting. And I've hit the point where I don't like playing in other people's sandboxes. I want my own sandbox. But I have kind of specific requirements for my sandbox as someone who runs games professionally is that it kind of has to, it has to play on some reasonably known tropes in order for people to be able to pick it up and feel like, okay, yes, this is a setting I understand. But also some of those tropes I don't like, and some of them are boring. And so figuring out where to tweak has been something that I've been doing a lot of. And so when y'all reached out, I was like, well, let's talk about world building because it's what I'm doing. And I know it's going well. I know it isn't going well. So let's talk about it. Yeah. I mean, and also I've always found that when I talk about things like this, I get a bunch of ideas and then I go back. I'm like, oh, let me implement some of these things. Let me write all of this down in my notebook. And uh, that usually comes a lot out of our world building discussions we have on this podcast. Mm-hmm. So when when we're getting started with world building, um, Craig, actually one of your points in our little pre-show discussion. Um, we do yeah. have free production, everybody. <laughs> kind of, not really, wow. but kind of. Five minutes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's just, hey, you ready? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Craig, you were, you were talking about like where, where we start, like, where do we even start? Um, yeah, if, if you're building something for inclusion in some other setting, you've got these things already kind of in place for yourself, but if you're starting from scratch, um, and they're important to understand and to identify if you are creating them or if you're working with a supposed set, which is like the, the assumptions and the truths of that world. And there can be a lot of those, depending on how robust you want the world to be or how how robust it is if you're working in something else. Um, and it, you know, just it can be, you know, if there's magic in your world, how does magic work? Um, what are the what what sorts of cultures are you focusing on? What sorts? Uh, what's religion like? Is there are there gods or higher powers? What is the relationship between mortal people and the, you know characters that you're playing and those gods? You know, do, do they gain power from worshippers? Are they benevolent? Do, do they kind of do their own thing and they're kind of a plague on on the people? Um, 
you know, uh, uh, you can get as deep and dirty if you want to get into like climate and weather and geography and like which direction and every, you know, which way do, do the predominant wind winds blow? Like that'll determine kind of where different, um, land uh you know land features are like how forests propagate and how plains propagate and where deserts happen and you know like you can get into all of that it's it can get really really deep um if you want to go to that level or as we sometimes do often um in a lot of games that are out there not all of them certainly there's a lot that do other things um and that in games that people are might be might be looking to develop is to use some baseline you know, if we assume we have a planet that's about the size of the Earth and it rotates in the same direction and, you know, the prevailing winds are the same, you can kind of use the rules that we know. Well, for. You're making some assumptions about the shape of a planet. Yeah, yeah like, is it a Taurus? Like, is it a... <laughs> um, is is it is up is it flat it, mine's you know, a disc on a actual, series of elements. not conspiracy yeah. but is it actually, <laughs> is it actually flat um but yeah just all of that stuff and so identifying those things can be really useful especially um if they you know especially in so much as they impact the characters and what the characters going to do because ultimately you're building the world for the characters to live in and interact with and do things in so there might be some things that you don't really get too worried about um, but there might be some things like, you know, how religion works or or what technology, how, how the world has progressed to technology, how it got there. Did, 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 did it develop slowly? Did it develop quickly? Was it brought to by aliens? Like, you know, whatever um, that that impacts, like how the, the players are going to interact th with the world through their characters. So I think that's a good place to start. And it, that itself could almost be a topic, but Honestly. we're gonna we're gonna try to uh, we're gonna try to talk about a lot of different things about world building here. But that's 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 the baseline I started from, and mostly I thought about that because of um that came into play when I developed Code Warriors, which was okay. Here's a world inside of a computer, and I could have made that anything I wanted. There are little bits and pieces that are kind of Tron. Because I based the, the the initial inspiration for the game was in part the Tron movies, but there was so much else that was just completely freeing. I was able to say, okay, well, what is day and night inside of a computer? So I I had to define what how day and night functions and what that means to the people that live there. And so that's that's your baseline. <laughs> Have fun <laughs> developing that, and then we'll come back to the next step. <laughs> well, I. I start from genre, which is made, oh, another mm. even more complicated and unwieldy topic, right? But genres are reasonably well-established. If something takes place inside of a computer, we have some idea of the genre, and there's some assumptions already baked in. If something, if I'm trying to tell a gothic vampire story, okay, we've got some genre. If I'm trying to tell a Western, we've got a genre that's got some assumptions baked into it and that's important for kind of figuring out what you need to focus on because if I'm going to do a space western mashup I need to focus on certain things that I don't necessarily need to focus on if I'm doing a Hayao Miyazaki slice of life right I don't need to flesh out the same things for those and your point about winds made me laugh because you might that might be super trivial depending on your genre but if you're doing something that is kind of steampunk like blimps and like a lot of like zipping around on gliders oh my gosh suddenly your wind patterns matter so much right <laughs> so figuring out the kinds of stories 
you want to tell in the world, I think that's, at least for me, that's the most helpful place to start because if I spend a bunch of time fleshing out trade routes for a story that's not, that's never gonna be brought up in, then why did I do that? Because it's fun, I guess. But then that <laughs> probably tells me something about the kind of story I think is fun to tell, right? Mm -hmm. So starting from the kind of story that gets told and recognizing that there's no one size fits all. You cannot create a system or a story, I think, that tells every story. That's just unrealistic. It's incredibly unrealistic. And it's just going to set yourself up for failure. And stress. I don't think that, like, there's so much stuff that we don't know about our own world. And you can get around just fine and have plenty of adventures that way. So, like Sarah's saying, focus on the things that matter for your game first. And I, I also agree. I think genre is a good place to start. Um, If, if it's a horror ghost I'm like I'm doing paranormal ghost stuff I probably want to know at least for myself even if it's a mystery in the game I probably want to know where these ghosts come from and what they do and what the afterlife is like um before digging into the rest of it and build that up um and then of course like your so that's like your big like macro setting like the world and then you also have your specific setting because if I'm doing ghost hunting in a 1930s Chicago versus uh, a ghost hunting setting in a 1980s suburbia, they're going to feel a little different and I'm going to need different tropes to hit on because that also interplays with genre like so, so closely. And I don't need to worry about big fishing industry in my 1980s suburbia, whereas I might if I'm in I don't know. I'm doing pirates in the 1800s. Who cares? <laughs> so <laughs> I was trying to think of like, where would fishing matter? I don't know. I don't care about fishing that much. So I'm probably not going to write that story. <laughs> ghost fishing? Oh, ghost ghost <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, there we go. Survival, survival story on an island. <laughs> yeah. Like, now it's important for sustenance, <laughs> but otherwise like don't so much care where people get their fish. They get their fish. They eat their fish. They enjoy their fish. Oh, this kind of stuff I feel like is where really like the right what you know is is an important thing to think about. Um, if if you find yourself doing a bunch of having to do a bunch of bunch of bunch of really specific research on a on a thing, that might either signal mm, maybe this is not right for the story, or maybe I need to if it's especially if it's for a game and it's not like for your personal like for your personal game group maybe that's where you're starting to hire outside consultants um, especially if it's regarding like a diversity issue maybe that's when you hire a diversity reader or a sensitivity reader or other people who are working on the story with you because maybe then it's also not your story to tell yeah the question of why that story if you run into something that's you're not super familiar with and I think there's definitely a place for like maybe I huh okay I don't know a lot about well gotta stick with fisheries I don't know <laughs> I don't know a lot about fisheries but I've decided that I want to set my murder mystery in a fishery after hours we're really spitballing so bear with me here right <laughs> And I discover as I'm doing the research, oh, actually, this is really cool. Like, actually, this is so interesting. And how this real thing about how fisheries work can actually inform my plot. And that's awesome, right? So it could be like, 
actually an enjoyable process to do that research. But it could also be a question of, okay, I want to tell a, a Yakuza gangster mm -hmm. story. And it sort of gets into, okay, why? Like, what about that genre appeals to me? And to what extent am I maybe playing on stereotypes that got exported at a particular time into the U.S.? What about that is appealing to me and why? And kind of unpacking what that is. And maybe you do tell that story and you really enjoy telling that story. And maybe you say, actually, I need to get someone else involved on this. And maybe you say, you know what? Maybe this isn't my story. But that's really tricky, mm -hmm. right? That's a very personal call to make. But figuring out why you wanted to tell that story and why you want to include that element, I think that's really helpful for figuring out if that's something that you should be spending time on, someone else should be doing, or if you should be working in collaboration with someone. I think that's such a such a good point. And like with the fishery example, that's so low stakes. Even if you got something so wrong, you got something wrong about fisheries, that's not going to impact anybody's life. It's not really going to cause them any harm. They're not going to, they might be like, oh, I, I have a family full of fishers and we all work in fisheries. And that, that thing that you said was very silly, but it's not going to like, yeah, they'll laugh at you, but it's right. not going to be hurtful. No one is, um, no one is perpetuating stereotypes, harmful stereotypes that impact a person's daily life based on fisheries, whereas, someone who's Japanese or Japanese American and you're writing a story about the Yakuza, you could, per you could perpetuate a harmful stereotype, especially if you are not in that cultural group. Like you got to really be careful with that. And I, I like that advice too, of like thinking about why are you telling that story? Because if you do end up making this game, making this world and someone calls you out on something you want to have you want to make sure like if, if this was really the story you wanted to tell and you did you did the work for it and all all of that and you are coming into it honestly and you can't defend that you're gonna feel really crappy and that's beyond that's beyond <laughs> any valid points that somebody's making at you you personally are gonna feel really crappy because you can't explain why you did this and it's just gonna make you look like a jerk I see this happen all the time in TTRPGs, like especially for um, East Asian um, stories um, because they're so, they're so fetishized by Western media. I feel like it's, it's, it's a huge thing in TTRPGs, especially that. Oh yeah, absolutely. So apart from, well, like, let's say we have, we have a nice story. We, we've done our research. We're, we're building up the story. Like what else do we need to do for world building? So we, we have a story. Maybe, maybe it is something that we're even familiar with. We are doing, I like the idea of the alien, um, the alien Western mashup. Cause I've, I've seen aliens versus cowboys <laughs> in theaters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, then, yeah, if you start from your genre, you know why you want to tell that story, right? And let's say that like the alien Western really appeals to me. And then, I, and there is some work, right, that goes into, and this is maybe going to be a tangent, but right, I grew up in Colorado. I love Westerns. They are also super colonialist and kind of problematic, right? So when we're thinking about alien wants and Westerns, then there's some assumptions baked into the genre that we have to figure out what we're going to do with, right? Like, okay, who are the aliens and do we give them, are they monsters to be killed, as is assumed in a lot of game systems? Are they dubious allies to be negotiated with, as is assumed in other game systems? 
That's an interesting question. And this is where I throw in the caveat that I start from people and not everyone does. Some people really want to know, okay, we're in space and it's a Western. How do we get there? What's the tech like? Like what <laughs> happened there? And that's where they'd start. And that's equally valid. I like to start from people because I am a more sociological kind of storyteller. That's not where everyone's going to start, but you figure out that like some of those like underlying ideas. And I think everyone's going to do that kind of differently based on what they're comfortable with and what they're good at. And also sometimes just how you're tackling a specific world. We, we like to yeah. put on different lenses sometimes. And, and what, it, and what interests you too? Yeah. Like, you know, they, the, the technological thing that you were referring to, Sarah, maybe simply because that designer is just really intrigued by the idea of, well, what tech would it take to get us to the stars? Which is awesome. Which is great. Don't but, that. That's great. You know, sociologically, what do human beings do and how do they change and evolve and, be, and, and, be, and who do they become in order to want to go to this incredibly dangerous place? <laughs> Everything outside of this atmosphere is incredibly dangerous, and it's already dangerous here. Or vice versa, the aliens. Um, why are they coming here? And, you know, why yeah. are they going out there? And why, right? Why are the why are the aliens coming here? That's one of the, the you know, like it's the it's the joke I hear about like the aliens that hopefully you know okay maybe maybe spoilers for signs M Night Shyamalan's signs the aliens <laughs> in signs show years up. old you're fine. It's 20 or something. Yeah. Like okay, the aliens show up and we find out that they're hurt by water. But why would they come to a planet that's three quarters covered with water? And my answer is the entirety of space is deadly, 100% deadly to absolutely everything that goes there. That's carbon-based life. A, a planet covered one quarter in land that they can survive on is incredibly enticing. Well, you just raised an interesting question, right? Why are we assuming carbon-based life? Do well, we have to assume carbon-based into like yeah, silicon-based life and well, and that's a world-building <laughs> question too. And this is yeah. kind of what happens when you start asking those questions, right? We went from okay, why do we go to space? To why did other species go to space? Okay, we can justify something about the human desire for the horizon or whatever, but why did aliens go to space? Or did they have that too or not? And then we get to well, okay. You want to settle on places that have land and then we go to because it's everything else is dangerous and then you ask well what if it isn't right and those kind of experimental questions now i have a sense of what's like what's sparking what's sparking joy about my world and what is like oh no i don't want to <laughs> i don't want to do that right but maybe i get really excited about silicon based life and now i have an element of my world that i think is really neat because i was asking those kinds of questions Right. And that that exact sort of thing of why, you know, why did why did this happen or why would this happen can be trans, can be transposed into. <laughs> yeah, basically can be transposed into a, a lot of aspects of, of the world, like why you've got. OK, I've, I've got a fantasy world and there's these kingdoms and they have certain types of governments we're going to have. We're going to establish a number of kingdoms and there's going to be a few different types of governments and we're going to be able to play those off each other and they're going to have you know, conflicts with each other and all this stuff. But why did these certain governments appear? Like, what was it about this culture that caused a regency 
to rise as the dominant government? What was it about this culture that caused like some sort of representative democracy to rise about this culture? What was it about this culture that caused like a dictatorship to be the preferred, like people are happy that there's like this person or people who are in charge and they handle all the problems and I just live my life. And yes, there's parts of it that are crappy, but overall, I don't have to deal with that. You know, like there, there's like what, what got those cultures, what got those people to that point? And you give some thought to that when you decide how you're going to, you don't have to have a history written for that kingdom, but an idea of why, like you'll, you'll see it written like that in source books for games, like, you know, such and such a people are, you know, they, 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 uh, they appreciate and aspire to certain ideals and that's why they got to this type of government or that's why they, um, you know, set out into this outer space or they set out into the desert um, to, to, to learn about what was there and, and to, to settle and populate there as well. I mean, there's, you, that, that's a, a good go-to question for just about anything. Yeah. In, in, Cause you know, the, the only constant, um, in all of those things that you're building in the world is that time will pass and things do change. Um, and you know, like, how did you get, you don't, like I said, you don't need a whole history, but it's, it's useful to know how that got to be that way. Mm -hmm. You're at a tech level because how did you get there? Which, you know, was alluded to earlier. Yeah. That's a good yeah. question. And all the time. Often how did, how did the, how did that get to be that way? That's the kind of the basis of your history. You don't have to have it perfect, but if I say, okay, this, this, civilization is run by a dictatorship and the questions start to be okay why again I, I like the, I'm sticking with the toddler impulse why why but why but why right like that's how you build and maybe think okay well was the dictatorship imposed upon them by someone with a great deal of power it looks very different from a people were under threat and saw a dictatorship as the way to escape that threat but now it's like, okay, well, both of those things inform the past of this nation. One of those says there was some kind of power that the people could not withstand, and now there's a dictatorship. But probably that means the everyday person is not super down with this dictatorship because it was forced upon them. Whereas if you had a country that was at war until a leader arose to like rally the people and afterwards imposed herself as the queen of queens, you would have a lot of people who are actually like, yes, that is our queen, right? That's completely different. And neither of these groups are gonna be monoliths, right? You still gotta have people who maybe they weren't born for when this war happened. And they're like, well, no, why not my queen, right? And you might have people <laughs> in the previous example who were born after, the dictatorship rose pirates all they know and they're like actually no you know like look at other countries like we're pretty stable over here those people aren't monoliths but now i have a history i have a couple of different positions that characters within that community might take is it a full fleshed out like and then so and so succeeded so and so on the throne no we're not there yet but we're getting some ideas and we've got some robustness and some plot hooks to hang off of 
I'd like to point out that I think Sarah has pinpointed the exact perfect time frame to place the world in relative to the rise of the benevolent dictator that people welcomed, which is when the grandparents who were there for that are still alive, but the kids are like, what, you know, the, the, the grandchildren mm. are like, what the hell is this noise? And so now you've got social upheaval amongst the <laughs> yeah, three generations uh, social who, who view dif- view things in completely different ways. A really, a really good way to add on to that and kind of give different people buy-in is by borrowing something really important from our world that we currently live in, which is the idea that if you try hard enough and you work hard enough, you too can be the queen of queens, or at least up there in the 1%, even though it's like a complete fiction. Um, and Yeah, you can be one of her handmaidens. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so like, like thinking about how people can rise or fall through society is another um, interesting aspect to that. Like I feel, I see a lot of Hunger Games content now. It's like very much in the zeitgeist on in the TikTok circles that I'm on. And I think that one of the things that Suzanne Collins did well with the Hunger Games, like, okay, why are people just kind of like living with this um, idea that we can just, you know, suffer underneath this totalitarian dictatorship that's killing our children um, is the idea that there is a possibility for them to come back with all this money and fame and fortune. And that can be really like that personal, not everything has to be super macroeconomic societal. It can be very personal. Like a couple people think that they can see some opportunity. And even if it's all individual based, that can be a really powerful, um, can be a really powerful driving force too so like what do people want in general in your society what do they need in general in this society and what will they do to get it can also help drive like the type the types of social organizations that you have because maybe you do maybe now now in the hunger games world you have people who work their hardest so they can be legacy tributes so they can always win the hunger games all the time and then you have underground rebellions that want to stop it entirely like there's like all sorts of little tiny groups then that you can figure out motivations for. And that can really help flesh out a world and make it feel like it's living instead of just like, oh, everything was stable until the adventurers came in, mm-hmm. which which doesn't feel good. Yeah, I think a good rule of thumb is that if you've got one opinion, like one, this is the dominant thing, you probably have at least two people two different factions who disagree with the way things are and want to change it because nobody ever agrees on anything ever. <laughs> uh, if you want some good ideas, go to any leftist organizational oh, sphere <laughs> that you want in your in your town and you will find all sorts of differing opinions. But look at that. They they are all in this in the same meeting group together for some reason. Sometimes. Sometimes. Hopefully. <laughs> if things are going oh maybe okay (laughs) yeah and potentially that's a reason why nothing has changed yet is because no one can get along right that's a perfectly reasonable (laughs) argument for why now there has to be because ultimately we're creating a space for story to happen Mm -hmm. so you can't it's very tempting when you get into like the world building and oh now we've got this rebel faction and then you get into making things cool that aren't the players and so you've got to just carefully And these two factions were at each other's throat and then they worked it all out. No, 
yeah. put them at each other's throats right <laughs> now throats. so that the players' characters can be involved in whatever happens between those two if if they so choose to you know follow that plot hook if they don't if they decide to go off and you know do it, other things like okay maybe now you're as a world builder as as you're gming and the campaign is going along or if you're providing information in source books or you know that progress the story like now maybe that means that these other things happened with these factions um good or bad for despite prob problematic material here and there and some of the missteps in how they um, kind of <laughs> developed everything a great uh, look back on that is the old the original world of darkness which had like story like vampire in particular which had you know like everything kept moving forward they like source books came out and things were happening like so even when the characters were off here in chicago by night doing their thing da -da -da -da, there's other stuff happening around them and this would influence things that happened in chicago the gm could incorporate it it was produced you know it was, it was developed as part of um, kind of uh, this living, breathing campaign setting that that grew over time. Um, that was one of the great things about you know living living campaigns um, in the heyday of living campaigns in like the uh, the two thousands with Living Greyhawk and stuff. There was you know like the characters did stuff and like what they did you know could actually like they had the they had this they had things built in such a way that like if 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 a bunch of people went to this event and played this this particular event at this particular convention and most of them won that is you know succeeded in doing the thing they were set out to do then in that world that happened like that 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 change took place that's so fun and so much work oh my god it is <laughs> yeah, it's I, so yeah, cool. it is it is it is immense work i knew some of the people who were involved in that um on various levels uh, I don't, I, f I felt bad for them at the time. I still feel bad for them. Um, I ache for the, <laughs> the the effort that they had to put into that. But that's something that, you know, as a GM, you can, you can bring to bear in your game. Like the, the player characters are going to make changes that are going to ripple. That's another thing to keep in mind too, that things can ripple. Um, yeah, it's like a if, lot if, easier. I One of the things I did for building out the setting was I ran out of like four shot, very little like, campaign set at the very dawn of the world like things are not quite stable and you have to bring the cosmos back into balance and like how they did that and how their choices were made made helped lay some of the groundwork for the stuff I didn't want to lay out <laughs> because <laughs> that's important to recognize that like you probably have a couple of things that are just your jam like I am so happy designing cultures and like what they believe what they trade in what they eat how they're organized like I'm very happy to do that I don't want to design a pantheon of gods I don't want to do it <laughs> I don't want to do it I don't want to figure out and particularly if I'm going with like the gods are real and like have tangible impact on the world I'm just like oh my god and what alignment should each god be to be ah. properly attuned to the thing that they're due is is war a, a, a chaotic thing or is it a force for good so what should the god of war be what happens to people after they die i hate doing that stuff and so at some point i gotta suck it up and do it <laughs> <laughs> i've 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 gone through that i've 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 designed that i you know for my own games and everything i've i've delved into that i i no longer want to but i have had my fun doing that like what should the god of night be <laughs> well, probably you need to have something like that defined at some point 
even if you hate doing it and someone else might turn around and be like yeah i love give me all the pants i love to figure out what people's religions are and like how this works and what the after but they're like and then you're like okay but great what do they eat here <laughs> right you're at some point you're gonna have to do the parts you also don't like to do well they so have all much. these fisheries <laughs> <laughs> It is really hard, like, if you are doing a fantasy game and you're doing, like, that kind of fantasy game where the gods are real and all of that, blah, 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 you probably also oh. don't need to flesh out the full pantheon. I'm, like, even if you looked at a lot of, a lot of our fantasy pantheons are based off of a Roman or a Greek mythology. Like, uh, this is the god of this and this is what they do and they have, like, human-type relationships. They have brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and, and siblings and everything like that. Um... You don't need all of that. You don't, you can no. pick, you pick your favorite because you probably already have a favorite. Let's be honest. Me, I always love a moon goddess. My favorite mm-hmm. thing. I'm going to have my moon goddess and I'll have like two other maybe and I'll just use them. And as needed, I might throw in some others. But if I'm going to have gods mess around, I'm sorry, my players, it's going to be the moon. They're the coolest and that's what <laughs> I like. Um, and everything else is fine. Um, but you do need to figure out how that messing around occurs because otherwise you might write yourself into a big problem <laughs> where you said oh actually yeah no the gods can't the gods can't be killed right and then um, now i really want to kill a god yeah, yeah exactly right <laughs> you or like oh well the gods can intervene in mortal life okay well why aren't they solving this problem right you got to have some rules in place even for the things that you don't find interesting to design and one of the best pieces of advice I ever heard was that like you only really need about three layers before people think it's turtles all the way down right like and if you're really good you can get the third level to explain the first level um and like and that's gonna be something as like okay we've got um we've got ghosts in the fisheries I'm keeping with that because it's great (laughs) Okay, why do we have ghosts in the fisheries? Okay, well, they're the ghosts of fishermen that died there. Okay, well, how did they die? Right, they died because of the fishery assassin. Who the heck is the fishery assassin, right? <laughs> oh, he was the first person to die there, and now he's killing all the other fish. Like, we've just managed to create the illusion of turtles all the way down because the third turtle stands on the first turtle if that makes sense as an analogy it makes sense in my head no it makes sense to me (laughs) i understand what you mean like you you want it to be kind of a closed loop of explanations so when you have the toddler mentality um players and they keep asking why at least your answers can just be like i have four answers and i can cycle through these forever even if you keep asking why i mean it's all explainable quote unquote it's and at the end it's all fiction they're you can't even if you made a world based off of our own you cannot completely explain everything because we don't have all the answers if we did the world would be a little different uh so i it's perfectly reasonable to be like look this is not a story about grain so we're not going to actually answer how the bread gets made on the top of this mountain peak right we're not gonna do that (laughs) just roll with it and sometimes it's more fun to leave those mysteries open for GMs, if you are not the GM, for them to, like, your players and other GMs who are going to play your game to answer those questions. Like, when we made the Meats of Magic, we have these sentient automatons that, you know, 
they act like they were our version of the Fae. You know, they have their own morals. They have their own rules. They are completely inhuman. You cannot really understand them. You think that you can understand them and follow their patterns, but they all have these, they all have their strange programming. Where did they come from? There's a lot of possibilities. A lot of people have different, they have different thoughts, but you can decide. You get to decide. What are, what are they doing? What do they want? Who knows? You get to decide. And that can be more fun than having a specific answer that you lay out in the book. That's kind of like, yeah. it's kind of like the um, problem that Craig had said, oh yeah, the, the two factions, they were fighting and now it's all resolved. Well, okay. What do I, what do I do then? <laughs> At that point, it's just history. That's backdrop now. If it's, yeah. if it's now, like here's, here's where we're setting our players in, let them figure it out. Yeah. Which might mean the GM needs to know, but it doesn't necessarily mean the source book needs right. to tell them. Exactly. Exactly. All that, all that, all that goes to a point of you don't just across the board. You don't need to get more specific than you need to be for the purposes mm-hmm. of telling the story, because the more specific, and we've we've kind of hit on some of these, but like, yeah, the more specific you get, first of all, when you when you you're creating absolutes, um, if you're saying like this is this way and this is that way. Like gods can't be killed. Well, you know what? Now you've got a room full of players that want to kill a god, and they're gonna—they're not going to be satisfied until they kill a god. Um, so maybe you don't even talk about whether or not the gods can be killed. Yes, but there's a, if the story is going to take them to meet the god, then you need to know what happens. <laughs> the, speaking from experience, the fact that yeah. the fact that you can't be killed is what makes you a god. And now the players don't want to kill a god; they want to figure out how they themselves can, can become, become a god. Right? Are <laughs> liches gods in that point? Like, right? Yeah. There's right. now you, but but like right, it. and having no knowing how that might happen in the world, like, is it possible for? characters this is part of world building is it possible for characters to become immortal and all powerful okay yeah. well and yes so you, so you say yes and you say okay well how and you define a couple of possibilities and don't say those are the only ones you know but but provide the suggestions so that the that, that way if the if, if somebody's playing the game um whether it's your players as a gm or somebody playing your game that you designed they have something to work from or maybe a villain an npc in that game says oh I want to do this, right? Because anything the players can do, I would argue the rest of the world should do. In most cases, it is not fun to have player-specific abilities that only ever players have. (laughs) And then the rest of the world operates on different rules. That's weird, right? Unless there's that very specific (laughs) reason why, that's weird. So for internal coherence, anything the players can do, the rest of the world should be able to do and vice versa. What you're telling me is that if I had an isekai, for, but... if I was making an isekai version of my world, isekai is one of the ex- exceptions. Yeah, <laughs> that's I... like one of the few exceptions. <laughs> that's that's all totally of my fair game. <laughs> quick, quick sidetrack into my uh, DMing D and D days was um, there are certain spells that or magical effects that you know a villain would have that I found you know at various times my players. Oh boy, this is really irritating. I hate it when a villain does this. Um, like for example, back, like, I don't know for sure. I don't remember for sure how it works right now, but like third edition mirror image, um, where you're, you're hitting that guy over and over, but it's just an image every time. And you just slowly whittling him down through all his, all, through all their images. And it, it, they found it very irritating. So like, there was a point where I started a, com- a campaign and I was like, I had a list of, I don't remember if it was maybe a dozen spells that I was like, and I told them, I said, I'm not going to use any of these spells with the bad guys until the moment one of you does. 
<laughs> so the moment the wizard wants mirror image, boom, my villains get to have mirror image. And we're all going to deal with the, the heartbreak of having to whittle through five images to finally get to <laughs> the, yeah. uh, the, the spellcaster. Um, and there's a, there's a few of them like that. Um, in our in our pre our pre-production talk again also Sarah I wanted to make sure that we hit this point too because you had mentioned talking about neocolonialism and decolonization within our yes. settings can you want to tell us a little bit about that so the context of that is that my master's is in film and so I was looking at post-colonial cinema and like it's one of those things that sneaks into fantasy all the time to the point that if you're coming from a culturally Western perspective, you won't see it until you start looking for it. And then you'll go, wait, where did this come from? And I'll pick on Game of Thrones because Game of Thrones is a very, oh very good example of this, right? The entire plot happens in Westeros, which is fantasy England. You get a little bit in like someone who's in exile in fantasy, the Mediterranean, maybe. Mm -hmm. And then they go to... Westeros and the entire plot happens in Westeros but if you ever go and look at the rest of the world there's some really cool things in it that are just never ever mentioned right and there's a lot of things that just take place in fantasy England over and over and over and over again but they have potatoes why do they have potatoes right oh my gosh <laughs> make that one make sense so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about like Eurocentric fantasy. You can say that like it's perfectly reasonable, I think, to say actually, yes, you know, this is the story I'm going to tell for a host of reasons, right? Including perhaps that's my ethnic background and there's elements of it that I think are, I'd like to tell and explore, right? That's a totally reasonable choice. But then thinking about what the rest of the world is doing a little bit more than a lot of fantasy seems to do. Because if there are people with wings in the jungles of your fantasy Africa, that's so cool, why aren't we going there, right? And they're also presumably, if they've got wings, then, well, has that changed trade? Can they fly across from fantasy Morocco to fantasy Spain? Because that was a whole point of things, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's no one who's existing in isolation. And a lot of the tropes that we've all in a Western context grown up with are situated from a lens of colonialism where you've got the place where the things happen. You've got your fantasy Westeros. And you've got the place where your heroes, the people of Westeros go to to have adventures and interact with something different and bring back treasures and they come back here and then there's potatoes and that's something that once you start seeing you can't unsee and I think it's really important as game designers to question because we are designing mostly like fantasy sci-fi this is not the world as it is so not that you can never have dark themes but like why are you assuming this is the way that it is? Why are you assuming there are just potatoes and not that potatoes were brought from somewhere else in the history and what they do to a society when suddenly you have an easy to grow, readily available food source? No, it's just potatoes in so many fantasy settings. And I get hung up <laughs> on the potatoes 
because of what they represent, right? They're an indigenous American crop that was brought to Europe pretty late, mm-hmm. becomes adopted and suddenly becomes this thing that feels feels natural in something set in medieval fantasy Europe. Yeah. Yeah. When, not there. when you think of the medieval fantasy crop, you think of potatoes. They didn't have them. They're really. They're I, not there. I, I, blame, I blame Samwise Gamgee. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. You, you can blame a lot of that on Tolkien, but Tolkien's writing in a <laughs> right. very specific but Tolkien, right. context. But Tolkien's right. A lot of that, that's where a lot of it comes from. Um, a lot of our fantasy <laughs> tropes and, and uh, kind of cliches um, come out of Tolkien and uh, people who were directly influenced by Tolkien. And, and it comes out of people who aren't really doing a lot of their own looking into things themselves. Like a lot of people don't actually know that potatoes are from South America and Central South America mostly, right? They don't mm. think they had them in Central America. See, shows you how much I know. Or like when you think of corn, you think of like traditional, like you think of like modern Midwest. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not where it came from originally. It was not a. It was not a a white settler crop when they came over from England. They didn't bring that with them. That was uh, an indigenous crop here too. Like there's a lot of things that because people aren't doing their own research, they are making those assumptions because of the stories that they read. Whereas those stories, I mean, at least if you're looking at Tolkien, Tolkien being, uh, you know, a a linguist and uh, like knowing a lot about um. When, when you're a linguist, you also know a lot about sociology and all of that. Like, maybe he was making his own assumptions, too, but probably knew, you know, a little bit more about that world. But the more that you are bringing from that, the less of your original research you're getting and the more assumptions you're baking into it. And I do think it's really important, especially given us living in a world and like I'm I'm white I have to really think about these things too and question my own assumptions because I am at you know I want to I want to decolonize my thinking um I I just think it's really important <laughs> I guess yeah. all that I'm like I think it's really important to question your assumptions especially as a white game designer yeah and it's not easy like I really one of my more like accessible recs is the book Unthinking Eurocentrism by Shohat and Stam which is, I say, relatively accessible. It's still pretty dense, but it really does a good job of going through like the like popular movie canon in the U.S. of the past like fifty years, and just being like, "Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed this?" And I distinctly remember reading that in my master's program and going, "Oh, <laughs> right, <laughs> yeah." And it didn't necessarily feel great, but then it it gets back to that question of why do I want to tell that story? Like Indiana Jones, like I know all the ways in which Indiana Jones is so problematic, but I love it. I absolutely love it. And being honest with myself about why I want to tell, what about Indiana Jones appeals to me? Being really honest about what that is, is really important when we're talking about problematic phase. Cause it's really hard. You can't escape it. If you come from a Western context, like, so much of the Western storytelling tradition is based on a very colonialist and pretty recent past. Like I went on down a rabbit hole, like when the British empire like started making their colonies. And a lot of them were founded in like the late 1800s, like 1896, early 1900s, so much more recently than I thought, right? Mm -hmm. 
but that's really absolutely informed the kinds of stories that we tell. So are we reproducing those? And if so, let's do it consciously and say like, this. you know, this is that yes, they have this nation that's not as successful because someone colonized them. Totally reasonable storytelling choice, but don't say, oh, they're just backwards for hand wavy reason because. Right. Why, right? Yeah. Why? Especially if it's something that's coded as something from the global South. Why? Yes. Why do you think that region is just happens to be less developed or has more conflict, right? That didn't just happen. There was a reason for mm-hmm. it being very deliberate and very thoughtful and that's all I mean yeah I know I just made a tall ask potentially to some game designers who are listening you don't have to get it perfect but it's worth starting it's a it's a it's a constant process of dealing with those sorts of things like I just I'm putting the finishing touches on capers capers cyberpunk which is a cyberpunk game that eschews that's your word of the day everybody eschews um some of the uh, the classic tropes of cyberpunk because uh, for a number of reasons, first of all, I wanted to do something that was different than just the same old rainy, dreary Seattle, everything, you know, huge skyscrapers. <laughs> it's all, it's all chrome and neon. Um, and it's always dark night and raining. Um, but, uh, you know, I got rid of certain things like classic cyberpunk. A lot of the games that we know and love um, absolutely love their street samurai slash katana wielding badasses. They love to embrace the Yakuza as a uh, as a as a bat you know a, a gang force within the world and it all reeks of fetishization of um eastern culture of japanese culture um so i literally you know i i, I had a character that's illustrated in the book as holding a sword that's kind of their thing there's this npc they're a badass with a sword they even have um a nickname that alludes specifically to a his a sword from a uh uh um from a literary work, their nickname is Snickersnack. Um, <laughs> Ooh. Um, and uh, Jabberwocky. And um, the uh, my artist drew the character, lovely illustration of the character with a, with a sword that may not have been specifically a katana, but looked enough like a katana that I was like, nope, not putting any katanas in this game. So now she's got a big fat broadsword. Um, Nice. And that, that that was done on purpose. And I, I, I you know, it, it helped that I was dealing with the capers world, which is built around like kind of grows from the organized crime of the 1920s. So the gangs are like your Italian gangs and your Irish gangs and um, the, you know, the ones that we kind of know of um, and uh, uh, black gangs from um, you know, like the organized crime, like the, the various organized crime in the big cities. Um, and it doesn't get so much into like I, I didn't I, I I tried to not get tropey with uh with um you know particular types of uh gangs built out of certain East Asian cultures. Um because that that it's not that it's not a valid thing to have in a world, but it was like it it's so heavily associated with cyberpunk and it has that sheen of fetishization of of that culture um that I didn't want it in my game. At least not to, to a... not 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 to any sort of prominent level, or certainly not illustrated yeah. in the game. It's like that's why why do you want to tell the story you want to tell again, and being really honest about that, right? I wanted to create a cyberpunk world that is decidedly cyberpunk, feels cyberpunk, but has the twist of the superpower thing. Um, definitely has cyberpunk aspects to it, but it's not 
all the tropes of cyberpunk. Yeah. And, and I, that I, I, you- I comment on, you know, like you, you can fight, you can fight the mega corpse in the daylight too. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of the point of the game is that, you know, it's, it's comic booky and super powery. So there's a lot of color um, because you yeah. can't fight the mega corpse in the daylight. Yeah. And there's something about like what's important in to you in like that storytelling, I think. And I think the more that you like spend time with, why do I want to tell this story? You know, why is X thing important to me? The just the more you get into it, and, and the more I think honest you can be when it comes to things that are a little bit trickier, right? Like particularly when it comes to real world inspired things. And it's not again like I cannot express enough how much like trying to be perfect you will never write anything ever don't try to be perfect just try to be honest about your why (laughs) and that if you're if you get critiqued that's totally reasonable but you have an honest why here's why I did that and that why can change because you're a person but being honest about your whys I think that really really helps maybe your why of there are potatoes is that actually your fantasy setting works a lot better if the average person has a sustained food source. Totally reasonable. Totally reasonable, right? We're just going to put potatoes in that. That's fine. But you have an honest why. And it's not just, oh, there's always potatoes. And when you're working, like Sarah was talking about right at the outset too, like looking at a genre, working within a genre, there's you can make the choice. And this this goes beyond um, things that are appropriation or problematic. It goes to just the genre in general. You can you can turn some conventions of genre on their ear um, and still have the genre be identifiable. Mm-hmm. Um, you can, there, there does tend to become a breaking point where if you, you turn too much on its ear, it stops being that genre and starts being a mashup of that genre and some other thing, or maybe even kind of transforms into another thing completely. But you can do all sorts of things where you, where you just strip out, like, I'm going to have a fantasy game, but I'm going to strip out like these, these 10 things that are just like in every damn fantasy game, because mm-hmm. I want this one to feel a little different. Yeah, some things are load-bearing. Like, it's really hard to play a Dungeons and Dragons-esque fantasy and not have objectively bad guys. Mm-hmm. You can try. But it's really, that is that one's kind of load-bearing. The Western relies on an unsettled frontier, except for maybe some creatures in it that are hostile. That's a kind of a load-bearing concept. You take away the frontier, you don't have a Western anymore. But within that, there's a lot of room to play. Mm-hmm. And a lot of other assumptions, too. I mean, we could get into the the fact that, like, what do you mean by unsettled frontier? There right? are people there. Right? That Exactly. It's... But that's not what the Western sues. <laughs> that's why I liked, well, like, when we made, when we made Moonpunk, like, okay, there are no aliens on the moon. We don't, we're, this is not, this is not a colonialism, um, par- like not parody, but satire on colonialism. It's a satire on corporatism. It's a satire on libertarians, specifically. <laughs> they always want to go, they always want to like live on an island or on a boat or on the moon. Um, and then this is what happens to people when you go there. Um, and like, could you have aliens in there? Yeah, technically you could, you could, if you wanted to make aliens, we do have a playbook um, where you can have people with with um non-human characteristics uh but that's not in the world though the world is the moon was our moon it's our moon and capital capitalism put you there and here we are (laughs) um (laughs) and uh 
when you have it in the Western format, though, you immediately conjure up for some people, you're going to conjure up negative stereotypes, harmful stereotypes about Native Americans. Like it's going to happen. And I think even like, like you said, Sarah, being honest about it, I think even going a little way, like why, why aren't there people here? How is this truly unsettled? Like you can even put in your book if you're publishing a setting or have a sit down with your players and, and explain this, like, yes, I understand the history of this. I made it like this because of reason, reason, reason. Um, and, and, and move on from there. And that way you can still play with the genre that you like while still acknowledging, you know, any, anything like you're, you're not, you're not just hand waving it away. You are sitting, you're having this honest conversation about the, about the genre, about the setting. For me, like if someone, if someone did something <laughs> like I was like, hmm, and they had a good, they, like they even had just an explanation. I would be much more willing to have the benefit of the doubt for them than somebody who just put it in their story without saying anything. Yeah. And I use the Western because that it is an example that's like kind of like near and dear to my heart, but also like so, so flawed in so, so many ways. And it's something that I keep kind of batting around because I love, there's certain elements of the Western that I love, right? I love the like small community on the edge of what is known. I love that, right? I love the idea of like the lone hero who can't really fit in with society, but is needed by society. Like I love the idea of like action as what matters rather than words, like mm. those kinds of underlying things when I talk about genre, like those are kind of, those are much more core to a story in terms of what I want to tell. But yeah, there's so much about the Western, right? Like, I mean, you had mentioned, it. <laughs> you had mentioned Indiana Jones too. And there's a lot of really stuff, like a lot of so stuff I love, I love about, about that about too. Like I love the idea of exploration and discovery and discovering. And an academic past. doing it. And an academic doing it. <laughs> um, but even within the actual real life academia of archaeology, that does not belong in a museum. It does not. I'm sorry. Put it back. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like you would have to really like, again, it's a really fun genre for us. For me, I I have never been in a situation where like artifacts from my culture are being pilfered and put into yeah. a museum in London. So, or gosh, if it's not, they don't even put it in the uh, museum, Sarah, they put it in a big warehouse and no one can look at it anymore. I know, right? That doesn't even, that's not even putting it in a museum. There's no scholarly, that's just grave robbing. I'm sorry, that's what it is. Uh, and I love it. The whip's cool. The hat's cool. Yeah. So it's... figuring out what you love and what you can, what you have to, what you want to include, warts and all. And are you going to acknowledge those words? And what you're like, no, I'm not, I'm not putting katanas in my cyberpunk game. I'm not touching it. That doesn't align with who I am. And figuring out actually maybe we can do something to kind of bridge these gaps. Maybe I haven't solved the Western yet because I would, I love the fantasy Western overlap, but yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of those, I'm like sliding down my chair. (laughs) It's one of those, it's one of those dicey topics and it goes, this would go, I'll use the Western as an example, but you can do it for a lot of different genres that have those tropes that are in there that are kind of like, really? Um, That the genre is recognizable 
and there's a number of things that people recognize about it. And you can take out something just like say, I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to take this thing out completely. This, this thing that's going to irritate irks, be irksome and, and problematic. I can take this out completely or I can turn it into something else that isn't that, but still serves the purpose I'm looking for. And then like even just said, you know, you can have a sidebar up front in the game and say like, Hey, I recognize this happened. I mean, it could be, Again, like Sarah said, and Jess both said, um, it's trying to figure it out, trying to decide and, and improving yourself and figuring it out. And you're going to, you might screw it up here and there. Um, and people might call you out on it and then you learn something and then you don't make that mistake again, or yeah. you don't do that thing again. Um, I've been I'm watching a lot of that perfection. You will never do anything. Like right. I cannot express that. I've enough. been watching a lot of a medical drama where they love to talk about M&M's morbidity and mortality conference where they, this, the surgeons talk about what went wrong so that we don't make that mistake again next time. Like, and this discussion and discussions you have with other people and people that talk about your game on social media and engage with you. Those are your little mini, um, conferences to talk about the things that you did and be like, Oh, that wasn't the best choice. Okay. I won't do that again. <laughs> and the stakes are way lower for a private game, right? Like mm -hmm. personal yeah. game you're playing with your four friends stakes are pretty low. You try something out and as like, and like I ran into this right where I had like a whole, uh, I had a whole conflict where like, you know, like the, the rebellion rises up and then the uh turns out that like power corrupts right and then suddenly it turns out that actually maybe the party needs to pull back the leadership right and i ran that and then like as i ran that you know i ran into uh, through play I, I discovered all the ways in which that can also go a little weird right and it's like you're never gonna find a like morally perfect story you just gotta like Sometimes you ought to sit with the mess and move on. But the stakes for doing that in my game for people, pretty low. When you do it in a setting book, there's a challenge that comes with sharing your work with the world. And it is kind of a personal thing. And so you just got to do the best you can do and be a people about it. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on our podcast today and talking to us about world building. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Uh, where can we learn more about you and your stuff? Um, I am, well, I'm technically on Twitter, but it doesn't spark joy anymore. So I don't think I've posted in a hot <laughs> several months. <laughs> but I am on Twitter at the <laughs> underscore DM underscore Sarah. And if slash when I decide to not be on that, but be active somewhere else, I'll probably post there to update where I'm moving to. It's just killing me right now. Uh, you can find my stuff on DMs Guild and Drive Through RPG as well. I design for and publishing. I was one of Level Up's lead designers. Currently, you can find me at getting a PhD. So we're <laughs> pretty slow on the design front <laughs> right now. Um, I do also have a website, Scholar Sarah at card.co. .card.co. It's a card. I, it's, a, it's a website in quotation marks. Um, and I spell my name with an H because that's important. Um, but you can find my <laughs> publications, my both academic and not academic. Uh, you can find my tabletop and my journal articles in the same place, which is an interesting choice, but I wasn't going to make two websites. So those are probably the best ways you can get in touch with me. 
they are both facets of you as a person. Yeah. And I I personally <laughs> think that the idea, the assumption that we should separate our personal and our and our professional lives to be something we should question. How about that? <laughs> well, they're all kind of professional, just different professions. And then it's like, well, what can I, can I also craft? Do I do I create a separate tab for like my jewelry? Right. And now we're just <laughs> causing problems. So I don't know. That's kind of where we're at. We're a state of flux. Check the Twitter, check the website. I'm going to stay in touch and I'll let you know when when the dissertation is written, where what's happening next. Well, congratulations on getting your PhD soon. Oh, one hopes. I'm battling the the IRB for human subject research right now. There's forms. <laughs> oh, poor Sarah. <laughs> Hang in there. I believe you in you. Can, you can find me you at Jessica on social medias. Um, I will never do IRB again because I hated it the one time I ever had to do it. So yeah. <laughs> good on you. Um, you can find my non-IRB approved games at DriveThruRPG and on Itch. Um, we did do human experimentation with our games um, called Playtests. And uh, so, yeah. haha. And it's, it's uh, exactly. yeah. it's fine. wannabegames.com is my website. Um, I'm Craig Campbell. You can find me at NerdBurgerCraig on the various social medias. Um, the website is NerdBurgerGames.com, and you can find my games at DriveThruRPG. And uh, I know that nobody ever does their research into whether or not a human being can fit inside of an air duct and actually crawl around in it. So I hate Die Hard. I'm kidding. It's a great story, even though people can't fit inside of air ducts and crawl around in them. Just speaking as an architect. <laughs> <laughs> Flexible. <laughs> you can you go you can go places. The, prob the problem is the problem is that you'll be catching yourself on screws constantly because everything's strapped. It's, oh, it's, I'm not saying it's it'll be comfortable. Up there with screws that go into the. That I might, I <laughs> and there's dampers that there's dampers that close. There's all sorts of problems. Um, <laughs> I could I could spend ten minutes. You could incorporate that into but, uh, the world building. Sorry. Ooh, segue. I could, and you can't crawl through these ducts. Or you can. <laughs> and here's how a very angry architect. And here's why. And here's and here is why. <laughs> ducks are oversized because. <laughs> uh, thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avil by Steph Sachs. Thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye bye. Bye.